0: This episode is brought to you by StoreTasker. Do you need a great Shopify developer? StoreTasker has a hand-selected community of the industry's top Shopify developers and e-commerce experts. So far, StoreTasker has helped over 30,000 Shopify brands find a trusted and talented developer for projects big and small. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 49 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Marisa Zupin, the co-founder and CEO of United Sodas. United Sodas is a direct-to-consumer soda brand on a mission to reinvent soda into a high-quality, better-for-you beverage with inventive flavors and an elevated design aesthetic delivered straight to your door. In this episode, Marisa shares with us her journey from growing up as an only child living in Italy and Ohio, to working in marketing, media, and brand strategy at agencies such as Anomaly, 360i, and Undercurrent, to launching United Sodas during a global pandemic in May of 2020. She talks with us about press strategy, how she was able to achieve over a billion impressions within their first six months, and how she thinks about entering into retail. Tune in to hear all of this and more. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us an awesome review. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Marisa. Thank you so much for joining the show today. I'm super excited to hear your story in building United Sodas of America. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's it's really special to be here, so I'm excited to get into it. Awesome. Let's get into it. Um, where'd
1: you grow up? I grew up uh, in sort of a combination of three places. I was born in Middlebury, Vermont, uh, raised mostly between Middlebury and Florence, Italy. My family's super Italian. Um, I'm essentially first generation, and uh, their family settled in Ohio, so most of my family's Ohio by way of Italy, and I spent a lot of time in those three places. So very interesting mixture of like, you know, East Coast plus uh, Europe plus Midwest.
0: Wow. That's pretty awesome. Especially from an early age. I think like most American kids grow up and never see Europe, barely Mm -hmm. know where it is on a map.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was interesting. I I think I appreciated it much more when I got older, because when I was younger, I definitely just wanted to be like the kid that went to summer camp with all the other kids. But Mm -hmm. I went, you know, I went across the the ocean instead, um, which when I was much younger was annoying, but then I, then I wisened up a
0: little bit. (laughs) Worldly perspective from a very young age. That's awesome. (laughs) Um, So did you have any siblings? I did not. I'm an only child. So I spent a lot of time
1: alone in my imagination on all those trips to Europe, um, Mm. you know, and uh, definitely, uh, definitely impacted my personality and my ways of working and how I relate to people and all of that stuff.
0: How do you think that has impacted you? Um, you know, I think as an only child, you really
1: have to make sure that, uh, if you don't go out into the world and make your friends and find your peer group, it it doesn't happen. Hmm. So, uh, there's definitely a recognition that, um, you know, there's a lot of sort of like self-starting when it comes to your social world Mm -hmm. and the relationships that you create, um, that are outside the family unit, are, um, extremely important because they help you understand how to be a kid. Um, because of course, when you're, when I was with my parents, I, I learned a lot about how to be an adult because it was basically two to one in the, in the family dynamic. Mm -hmm. So I was always extremely comfortable with adults had no problem sitting at the adult table and talking about listening to adults, talk about adult things. Um, but I think, you know, it was definitely much more um, I don't know, formative and reflective to, for me to go out and and make my own friends and sort of create my own brothers and sisters in that way.
0: That's interesting. You know, I guess kids don't come knocking on your door unless it's trick or treat like Halloween time. So you had to actually go out there and, and try to find friends, which is tough to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think when you're a kid, it comes naturally. Like you make friends
1: in the classroom, you make friends in the sandbox, whatever that is. Um, but the, the way that, you know, when, when the friends aren't around, it's just the adults. I didn't have brothers or sisters to kind of like keep that sort of childlike thing going. So it was either in my imagination or with these friends that, um, that I ended up becoming and still are extremely, extremely close to my best friends throughout my life, um, are like super,
0: um like almost like quasi brothers and sisters awesome yeah and what did you want to be when you grew up that's a really really good question I think about that a
1: lot because I don't I don't know if I ever had these this moment where I thought okay I'm I'm going to be a you know rock star or I'm gonna be yeah I'm gonna be a doctor or something like that I think I always knew um My inclination is, was always very aesthetic and um, performance oriented. So I was a singer, I was an actor, like, uh, you know, like at school. Um, And I also was always very interested in like art and design. So there was probably something in that space that was very attractive to me. Um, Always very, very attracted to cultural moments like movies and music and stuff like that as a kid, very like pop culture oriented. Um, but I don't think I ever thought, you know, I'm going to be Britney Spears one day or (laughs) whoever, you know, um, when I was, I guess I'm dating myself, but, um, Yeah. It's a tricky question. I certainly, you know, didn't wake up one morning when I was 10 and say, I'm going to be the CEO of a a soda company. So this has (laughs) been a very interesting journey to get me there.
0: (laughs) Were you entrepreneurial as a kid at all? Did you have lemonade stands or did anything kind of stick out to you looking back?
1: Yeah. So I was, um, I was entrepreneurial in a creative way. So I was very interested in, um, Uh, like designing things for people. So I had this project, this whole project where I made like um, fashion sketches of clothing that I wanted to, uh, to make or like outfits based on clothing that my friends and I had that we Mm -hmm. could wear for certain occasions. And I created these like little fashion notebooks, and I would bring them over to my friend's houses. And they would ask me to make, you know, this outfit or that outfit or whatever. So that was fun. And then I, sort of graduated into, um, selling my clothing, um, to people. So when I was in college, I had like a little mini shop out of my, out of my dorm room where all the clothing that I was, you know, was parting with, I would sell. Um, and, uh, as you can see, there's sort of a fashion element to, to Mm -hmm. my childhood and my, my young adulthood, which was really strong. And so when I moved to New York city, eventually I thought, I thought I'd be in fashion. Um, and, uh, I'm that curious real
0: quick. Part. <laughs> I'm curious when you were, you know, designing stuff, because I was very similar as a kid, like yeah. in high school, loving fashion. And I designed my own um, prom gown. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious. Yeah. Did you do that too? So I designed... Actually, I went to three proms.
1: Um, wow, lucky you. You were and, popular. Yeah. <laughs> way more popular than me. Um, no, I don't know. If, uh, anyway, <laughs> that's always a difficult thing to reflect upon. Was I popular in high school?
0: Um, were but, you? Uh, Do you think you were?
1: I think, I think I'm think i like most people who, in the moment, I didn't think I was popular, but other people thought that I was. Looking you know back, you were actually
0: yeah. much more popular than you thought. Probably, probably. <laughs>
1: um, and uh, And I think... <laughs> Yeah, I think maybe um, that uh, I had my own sort of brand of popularity um, because this, the, the moral of the story is I went to three proms. The first two proms, I wore like a, you know, like a whatever dress, like Jessica McClintock or whatever. And oh then. Oh my God, um, that brand. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I remember that. You right back. I know. <laughs> yeah, right <laughs> back. The first one, the first prom dress I had, I bought at Lord and Taylor on like Fifth Avenue here, um, which was very exciting for me. But anyway, by the time I got older and like kind of knew my own style, I, end, I ended up going to my third prom in a complete bespoke men's suit with a hat wow that was that's bold super super into menswear from a very young age this was in Um, ohio where was this i was in vermont but still not normal normal in vermont not normal yeah um but uh yeah i mean the suit was pretty pretty good looking and you know it was like well fitted and everything but um i was very into menswear when i was you know i still am um and uh Eventually, my foray into fashion after I moved into the city was very much about menswear. So, I was like a menswear writer, photographer, did a lot of stuff in menswear actually. Um, so, fashion.
0: So, yeah, how did you get from, from Vermont through. to New York? What's that story?
1: I went to college in Ohio. <laughs> and uh, when I graduated, everyone asked me, okay, so, you know, wh- what are you going to do next? And it was always so obvious to me, like, I'm going to go to new york and i'm gonna work in fashion duh right you wanted to be a designer uh i wanted to be a writer um actually i wanted to like work at you know vogue or one of these or um, you know some kind of more niche magazine at the time visionaire was like the cool niche um like fashion publication that was extremely artsy and conceptual so um I like literally had Cecilia Dean she was the editor-in-chief of that magazine her phone number like in my back pocket when I arrived to the city and like called her office like how did you was, get her like, number one of my professors in college was randomly an advisor for her on one of the hmm. magazines um so anyway <laughs> I ended up actually um in in marketing um because a friend of mine knew somebody who was working at an agency and while I was looking for a fashion job, I thought I would do this random marketing job. And I just kind of never left and, and really loved it. Um, and by marketing, I really mean just kind of like overall sort of creative communications, brand strategy.
0: And, but did you and, end up I, working for yeah. the Visionaire magazine or no? I did not. I oh, didn't. so you got to New yeah. York, you called her and she didn't answer her phone?
1: No, I had some interviews and stuff. And I really liked it a lot. But ultimately, I really ended up loving the job that I was at which was a sort of like I thought it was a stopgap but it ended up being Mm. um, it ended up being my real dream I suppose
0: awesome so you're in New York City you're working away what are some of the biggest lessons you learned um, at your first couple jobs wow Um,
1: biggest lesson that I still hang on to uh, was that you really should be working for the people that you think are the best people. Um, And, you know, I'm the kind of person that if I could follow my favorite boss from job to job, I I would, uh, and, or project to project. Um, I really just believe that at the end of the day, we spend more time with the people that we work with than we do, you know, ultimately with our families a lot of the time. And uh, if you can make it work with the people that you work with, and if you can learn from, you know, the best person you know, um, then that makes it all the worthwhile. Like I often joked when I was in advertising, you know, give me the right team and we'll work on toilet paper. Like it, it doesn't matter what we're working on. We'll find a way to make the work incredible if you're with the right people and the right team. And I very much felt that from the beginning. Um, one of the reasons I didn't leave that job that I really, um, that I thought was just going to be a layover job for me, um, was because the woman I was working for, her name's Kate Boydell. Um, she was just such an unbelievable inspiration to me and I would have like followed her through a war basically (laughs) and um and I learned such an intense amount from her and still carry that around with me uh so that was probably my first lesson was follow the people that you love and the people that you admire the most and everything else would
0: fall into place what do you think she did right that made you so loyal to her so excited to be working with her all the time
1: Um, She was not only an excellent, like excellent at her job, so I could watch her doing her thing and learn from her. But she was extremely interested in helping me. She wasn't trying to make me a mini me. She was trying to help me find what what I was good at in the space, right? So she really almost created a curriculum. I was so young at that point. I didn't even know the difference between like an art director and a copywriter and a, you know, I, I didn't know anything. So she basically allowed me to explore. I, you know, I had my core job functions, but she was like, go hang out with the designers, go hang out with the copywriters. Why don't you try working with the producers, you know, and allowed me to kind of explore different aspects of how work is done in my field, which at the time was branding and advertising. Um, and I, it really was, unique and very lucky because, um, you know, to have a mentor is one thing and to have a great boss is an, is an, is one thing, but to have a teacher is, is really, 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 um, a teacher who know who's interested in teaching, um, is really valuable. So I, you know, I, I sort of try to keep that going now that I'm on the other side of that equation. A lot of the time at this point,
0: she sounds like she was a great mentor, which is really important. Um, in being all. a good leader. Mm-hmm. Um, So where where was this again? Where was this job? She was working. So it's an agency
1: called Anomaly. It's still around. Excellent, excellent agency at the time. And I still believe to this day, they have a part of the agency that's um, completely dedicated to creating like IP. So products, brands of their own. Uh, And some of the time they created them on their own. And some of the time they created them in conjunction with um, other companies. I was essentially incubating ideas for bigger companies. So I was a part of a group that, within Anomaly that was contracted to incubate global beverage ideas for Coca-Cola and Nestle. So that was my first job, was doing complete brand and product development, white space analysis and everything all over the world for Coke and Nestle. Uh, And so... I guess where I am today isn't that much of a surprise, knowing that that was my Yeah, first that kind day. of aligns pretty well, I'd yeah. say. Yeah. So, I, and you know, I, I kind of went through my career after that and picked up some other things along the way. But then it kind of all came right back to developing a brand for a white space
0: in the beverage space. Um, and this is the thing yeah. people, I feel like don't see. Cause you know, it's always hindsight where it's like, Oh, now it all makes sense. It's, yes. You know? But at the time you're like, what am I doing? What is all this leading to what's happening? Yes. What am I going to do with my life? Yeah. A hundred percent. And you know, it's like, you know, I, I'm the kind of person that,
1: um, really follows my intuition and just makes sure that what I'm doing in the moment feels right for me in the moment. And so when I took that job with beverages way back when I didn't have a background in beverages i didn't go to school for for marketing even but that felt right for me and then it's very interesting how years later you know you come back this this also felt right for me and when i decided i wanted to do this i didn't think oh this is the right job for me right now uh being the ceo of united States of america is it right is the right job for me right now because i did that work early in my career i made the decision and then it occurred to me oh
0: Oh, wow. Interesting. How did I get back here? (laughs) So you had a few jobs. It looks like you ended up working at Ralph Lauren, um, and social media and editorial manager. Um, can you talk about your, you know, what was it like working at Ralph Lauren? Here you are at a big fashion house. Yeah. (laughs) Dream job. You know, everyone
1: who's in fashion goes through Ralph at some point, or they should. Um, It's an incredibly, incredibly well-run business in comparison to what a lot of fashion gigs are, um, because they have such a huge organization. A lot of fashion houses are not that big. They're very small, and um, they don't have sort of the business angle of it as much as Ralph does. Um, So I, I was absolutely... Thrilled to get that job. It was a wonderful place to work. Um, they really treat their employees intensely well, and it's kind of a finely tuned machine. Uh, and so I met a and I met a lot of great people there. It's also interesting because it's such a large place, and yet you still have meetings with Ralph and David, who's his son, who runs the marketing side of things and a lot of the business side of things. Um, and so it it sort of still felt like you had that special creative magic that they bring to the table um ultimately for me i'm a I'm a small company person I'm like a, you know i i don't like to be on titanic so i like to be on like schooner boats titanic is a terrible way to put it because ralph is a fantastic company but um <laughs> titanic uh, kind of yeah. hit an iceberg to i want to so. be like a, maybe maybe uh, <laughs> i say i like to work on i i i would you know cruise ships are great but i like to be on like a little like jet ski situation um and how did you uh, figure
0: that yeah. out like what made you when did you realize that
1: uh i went through a couple of big companies um Ralph was one of them, although I really admired the, um, the work that, you know, that everyone was doing there. I just felt like I, I think I need to have a lot more problems to solve. Uh, I just, I, I like to have tough challenges and I like learning on the job and I like sort of the adrenaline of, of not knowing what's going to happen next. And you get a lot of that at smaller companies where you're doing things that haven't, been done before with a group of people that haven't done them together and stuff like that uh i really enjoy that so it's very
0: true what was your uh, first experience where you got to kind of be at a smaller company and take on a lot more responsibility and you're like oh this feels different and this is actually what i love doing
1: yeah uh i would say actually that first job at anomaly because we were such a small group i was sort of dropped into the middle of like tons of projects so i was doing everything from working to translate product concepts for focus groups in Russia into Russian with a Russian speaker who didn't speak English. Like, like, it was really interesting, you know, and we had to do it very quickly. And then we had to go run the focus groups. And then we had to, um, you know, essentially learn on the fly, like how uh, you know, a bottling line works by talking to the people who run it, so that we knew that our form factor concepts for the bottles we were developing for the products actually worked. And all this stuff was happening in you know a lot of intensity because we were working for really really high ups at Coke and Nestle. So, um, you know, that was sort of a trial by fire situation. Even though we're working with large companies, we're a very small company, and and I had a huge amount of visibility into. And and hands-on experience into the work that we were doing. Um, so that's, so I think, probably cut my teeth at that. And then um, I eventually was a part of a smaller agency called Undercurrent, which for those who have followed the agency world for a while will remember Undercurrent. Um, sort of a great small shop that specialized in digital and then eventually specialized in um, like organizational strategy, like how to organize your teams, how to train up your teams, leadership training, things like that. Um, and, uh, we were always doing wacky stuff. We were like a bunch of like, you know, kind of nerds that would just swoop into larger organizations and help them do some interesting stuff. So, um, both of those experiences were pretty scrappy and pretty fun.
0: And it seems like you also had a bunch of different strategy roles after Ralph Lauren, um, mm-hmm. for 360, I being a strategy yeah. director, uh, yeah. also at red scout. Can you kind mm-hmm. of talk about what you were doing in strategy there? Yeah, so three sixty i was a
1: really fantastic experience for me. They're a large company, but sort of uh, operate like a at least a strategy team operated like sort of a smaller SWAT team. And uh, the the types of strategy I did there were really wide ranging. I did some, you know, I started off doing some digital and social strategy, ended up doing some brand strategy, did a lot of campaign strategy, did some media strategy, Um, and the our ability to do that was basically because you know the the leadership there was so flexible on who they cast in what seat. And so, um, like I said, I really, really enjoy learning, uh, really tough things, the things that I haven't done before. I like doing things that I haven't done before (laughs) every day. Um, so, uh, so essentially I, I I was the one who was always raising my hands for a new type of a new type of role there or a new type of strategy. Um, And I learned so much there about how to manage teams. That was where I got a lot of my like more for lack of a better term management experience, but really it's just people experience, like how to manage laterally, how to manage up, how to manage down, how to manage senior clients, how to manage senior clients that have polit- politics within their company and you have to tread lightly, like all of that stuff. Um, because I had so much face time with so many people and I had to build really big teams really fast um, at 360 I. Uh, that's where I got a lot of that. And that's critical, critical, critical to the work that I do now. So aside from the hard skills of like doing the work, mm-hmm. it was the people stuff that 360 I helped me with a
0: lot as well. We'll get right back to our show, but first, a word from our sponsors. Having a great Shopify developer is so important for brands selling online, but finding and hiring a trusted and talented developer is really hard to do, especially for ongoing projects. That's why over 30,000 brands and founders have trusted StoreTasker, including Type A Brands and Hawk Media, who have been guests on the show. StoreTasker has interviewed over 5,000 Shopify developers, hand-selected the top 5%, and streamlined the hiring experience from end-to-end end so you don't have to. Whether you're a founder that's just getting started or a brand doing over $30 million in revenue, StoreTasker has a developer for you. Get introduced to your next Shopify developer for free, and get ten percent off your first project at storetasker. dot com slash CEO. That's storetasker. dot com slash CEO. Do you have any, um, you know, Cliff Notes you can share with us on that? Like any kind of um... <laughs> Cliff Notes on how to manage people? Here yeah, we Exactly. Go. <laughs> Ready to <set>, go? <laughs> Anything Look, you can like share? It's an ongoing. It's an
1: ongoing learning experience. I you know, people are the most difficult part of the job. They're also the best part of the job. And, and the reason why anyone should be doing anything in my opinion is to work with the right people and, and, um, and to spend time with, with those people and to make sure that they're happy and make sure everything is, you know, contributing positively to people's lives. And that's really my mentality is, you know, when you're somebody's manager, you're building a team, like you're responsible for. Their work, But you're really responsible for making sure that they're in the right mindset to do their work. And um, that includes the right environment. That includes the right um, briefing structure, like being very, very, very clear with what you need from people. It also means you need to recognize when they're ready to fly the coop um, and when, you know, they need to move. They need to move past you. And to be okay with that. Uh, so for me, um, and this is, you know, this gets back to what I learned from my first job. Your first, you know, the question that you asked me a few minutes ago what did I learn from my, you know, from my great bosses? And that it's really that it's like um, when you hire someone, when you manage someone, know as much as you can about what they prefer to do and what they want, what, what, they, where they want to be going. If as long as you can guide people to where they want to be going, even if that's outside of your company or above your own title, you're going to be, that's going to be good for you and for them.
0: Absolutely. That's super important. And sounds like you probably took away um, quite a bit of learnings there in building your own company. Mm -hmm. Um, So how did you come up with the idea for United Sodas of America? I mean, what a cool name. I feel like your sodas are more united than the country, but (laughs) (laughs) let's uh, hear the
1: story. Um, So United Sodas of America started almost as like a a small side project and curiosity that my co-founders and I had along with Alex Center, who's, uh, the lead, um, creative designer, um, who worked on the branding with us. And, um, it really came, you mentioned the name. It really came out of the name. Um, we loved the idea of creating the great new American soda company. And so when we saw you know, when you, you do a name exercise, you write down all the names that you can think of. And um, some, when something strikes you, you know, that's that's something that you latch onto. And that name really struck us. And for me as a strategist, it really struck me because the name itself is like a strategy, right? So there are some brands that are, you know, just one word names and that's fine. But the term United Sodas of America begs the question, what do we mean by United? What do we mean by soda? And what we, do we mean by America? And asking those questions, those types of questions and answering them in interesting ways will lead you to a great brand. So as, as a strategist who absolutely, my my the part of what I love to do is build brands from the ground up, from like nothing to something. That was very exciting because the name itself gave us so much richness to work off of. Very, very bold, big name. Uh, so that's how we started the strategy, was answering those three questions. And, um, you know, obviously we that had dedicated name... ourselves to being in that space.
0: How did that name come up though? Were you just like looking it at really a flag? Just naming. Like how did it happen? It was, it, there was a group of us naming and it just came out of,
1: kind of came out of nowhere. There was, you know. I don't know if you've done naming exercises, but it's like, it's very sort of intuitive and you kind of have to go with your own creative flow and you might write down 200 names before you find something that everyone strikes on. And so that was, that was one of them where we just kept looking at it and going, is this crazy? Is this interesting? What there's something here. And so the inclination to want to do a beverage, a soda space beverage, whatever that was mixed with the strikingness of the name really set us down the path of what we ended up creating visually, brand-wise, everything.
0: So before coming up with the name, you kind of already knew that you wanted to come up with uh, a new kind of reinvent soda, right? So how did that happen? What was that moment that you had where the spark hit and you were like, I have to start this company. This is exactly what I want to do.
1: It was actually quite gradual. Um, I think uh, the aha moment, you know, idea is something that I you know <laughs> I, I wish every story began with but for me it was we were working on this side project together we were developing the brand strategy and the design at the same time Alex and I are very very close we've been working on other brands together Alex and I we were both out on our own doing our own thing I was a strategist working with his team and we both come from beverage backgrounds Alex is from uh like Coca-Cola had 10 years being a design director at Coke and before that was working on vitamin water. Um, and then I had all this beverage experience that I had been, you know, that I had in my past. And we had constantly been seeing people in the space that we were helping develop brands for say, soda is bad. Soda is a, you know, soda is a, you know, a four letter word. And so we're going to develop the alternative to soda. We're going to develop a sparkling water. We're going to develop a tonic. We're going to develop some sort of kombucha, whatever it is. And that's going to be the antidote to soda, the soda problem. And uh, what was really interesting to us about that was that everyone was running away from that idea. So what if there was something within soda that we could fix? And came sort of fascinated by this idea. So what did it, you know, my journey led me down looking at all the sort of past history of soda in this country. It is a very American concept. Past history of soda, what the heydays of soda were in that sort of nostalgic fifties era, um even you know around the wars and and how soda became what it was, and then when did it sort of start to go downhill and And you know the brand revolved around sort of rekindling the best of what soda had to offer during those times and recasting it through a modern lens and then adding you know uh, what people want from soda today, and that really brought us to formulation, flavors and everything that that is inherent in the product properties of of what we have.
0: So were you still kind of working full time when this happened? And you know, when did you shift to f- being full time on this project? And I know that you guys are completely self funded. So mm-hmm. can you kind of walk through what the first steps were in creating yeah. the company?
1: Yeah, so uh, we actually developed the brand and the the foundation of the brand from a like strategic standpoint you know what do we believe in why do we exist what is our white space who's our customer etc and then um the visuals at the same time we did that at the same time and really had sort of a little bit of like a brand package that we um developed over the course of about a year to kind of convince ourselves of the idea if anything basically we um you know, we, we kept working on it, kept evolving it. And then we also were put into contact with a great flavor house that helps, you know, develop the flavors in the product. And we developed a brief for them and they helped us really land the liquid, which is a whole other process, but, you know, you have many, many rounds to figure out what your product is going to taste like, what it's going to feel like, what it's, you know, what its base formulation is about. And once we got that down. And we loved that. And then we loved the brand and the visuals and everything. Um, we thought to ourselves, all right, we're ready. We're ready to go on this. Like Once we convinced ourselves and we fell in love, um, we decided we wanted to get the funds together and make it happen. So that's what um, me and my co-founders did. And that So was, how, many,
0: how many prototypes did you have to taste before you found the one? And, <laughs> and did you only create one flavor at a time? Like no. Yeah, yeah. it's a great question. How many Frogs, did you have to kiss?
1: (laughs) Yeah, quite a few. So we had, um, there's basically two elements to the drink. There's your sort of base level, which is signature to us, you know, and we, all of the flavors need to work with that base. So if we were to make a base and only test it on one flavor, we wouldn't know if it would work and flex across many flavors. So we actually developed it across, I think the first few rounds in the first year were like five five or six flavors we didn't do all 12 at the same time we did need to see how you know different flavors reacted differently and how to make sure that the base was basically um hospitable to a wide range of things that we could ideate off of uh, and we also needed to make sure that nutritionals were matching up with what we wanted them to be you know we couldn't create a modern soda for what people needed today and have you know 95 grams of sugar in it um we had to make sure that it was the cleanest label we could have while also satisfying that flavor profile that we wanted so all of that we solved and then um, the last like um, i want to say five or six months of the product development uh, after we actually decided to fund everything was in nailing the exact flavors that we have and we have 12 of them we launched with 12 um, because we're a variety brand we're all about variety we're about choice um and uh specifically like flavor choice of flavor and and that kind of translates into expression and creativity, uh, in the, in the brand side of things. Um, but that took quite a long time. I think we, I, I lost track of how many rounds I would be guessing above 20 rounds of development.
0: So is it just you and your co-founder kind of tasting these different flavors and being like, yes, no, yes, no. Or did you have kind of like a beta tester group of people or how did you kind yeah. of think about it?
1: It's a good question. Um, We kept it pretty tight, but we did have people outside of ourselves (laughs) who who were tasting. The flavor house that we work with has a really great, you know, sort of panel process to make sure that there are other people tasting it. Um, But then it was really people that we trusted and people whose palettes we knew were going to be in line with the target that we have. Um, We're not a brand that's trying to satisfy every soda drinker, you know, the Mountain Dew drinker, the hardcore Mountain Dew drinker, for example, might not be the person for us. So we needed to make sure that the people who we were choosing outside of ourselves um, were the right, you know, were the the target that we're going for. So we kind of did our own family, friends recruitment um, in, in not every round, but several key rounds.
0: So when did you guys launch after doing a lot of product development and finally getting your 12 flavors completed and packaged and ready to roll? um, When did you guys launch and how much money did you need to get to launch? How much did you guys kind of fund to get this started?
1: Uh, well, we don't talk specifically about our funding, but, um, you know, it was, uh, we had to do it in somewhat of a scrappy fashion. Um, we don't have a lot of people on staff and we certainly didn't at the time. At the time we had three people on payroll when we launched. So you can imagine, um, how many hats we were wearing at the time. (laughs) And, uh, and we launched about a year after we started to um, fund the business. And it was in May of 2020. So we always intended to launch in 2020, obviously, before knowing what 2020 was. Uh, and so, and we always intended to launch D2C, which we did. Which was actually ended up being a fantastic move because we maintained control. We didn't have to worry about too many sort of cooks in the kitchen um, or like dropped contracts or whatever that may be once the pandemic hit. We were able to launch in the way that we wanted to, in the aesthetic that we wanted to, at the timing and everything, which was a true, um, you know, uh, I guess the stars aligned in that way. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and press was seminal to, to allowing us to launch with somewhat of a splash when we did. Um, because I think it was one of the, you know, one of the stories was launching in a pandemic. How do you do it?
0: <clears throat> yeah. And you mentioned yeah. that with your press strategy, you guys hit over a billion impressions in your first six months. Can you kind of talk about yeah. what that press strategy was that, and mm-hmm. what you guys did to get that many impressions? Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I'm a big believer in, uh, if you do something interesting and make something beautiful, press will care. So first things first, like you have to have something interesting to say, and you have to have a really, really stunning imagery to say it with. Um, it's a visual world right now that we're living in. Um, and, uh, pictures speak louder than words or whatever that phrase is, <laughs> um, it's pictures worth a thousand words. Uh, <clears throat> so those are really key for us. Secondly, um, we had a really clear strategy of leading and uh, following press. So making sure that the pacing across various publications and various verticals was very much orchestrated was very, very, very important. Um, orchestrating press is challenging because you, 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 you know, it's not advertising; it's press, and so you never really know exactly what's going to happen it's really important that you sort of manage it as much as you can at launch because you don't want mixed messages and you don't want things to be happening. Um, timing is really important. So making sure everything launches at least in the same flight of days can really create a huge difference and maintain momentum. So that's what we did. Um, we sort of had big spiky moments in various verticals. So we had first a like a business wave and then we had a consumer wave. And we made sure that those waves um, created momentum and weren't just like a flash in the pan. Uh, And that was, that was really key for us. We had to have the right journalists and we spent months lining it all up so that the right stories were being told. And also so that the journalists felt like they had all the information that they needed. They could follow up with us. They could taste the product. They could see the product, you know, there's a lot that goes into it and um, we wanted to do it right. So that was really key for us. We had a lot to say, and we knew that what we were going to say was going to be a little bit different than others. So we wanted to make sure that message got out there loud and clear.
0: That's really interesting. So you, you basically, it sounds like you sent samples to, um, different press publishers mm-hmm. or, and journalists, um, but mm-hmm. you kind of organized it by vertical. So you mm-hmm. mentioned consumer and business, mm-hmm. so you kind of like planned it out. So each week might be a different vertical so you kept getting press, but it was coming from somewhere different every time.
1: It's sort of like a surround sound effect. And there are people that have like overlapping areas, right? So I I mentioned business and consumer, but we also had like design press, for example. Now, a lot of consumers are really geeks about design. So if you're going to be, you know, looking at pop sugar, for example, you know, in terms of like a roundup of something you want to buy for your party, you might also be someone who's really interested in the dye line because you love product packaging. And so that person would sort of see two sides of the story, same brand, two sides of the story. Similarly, in the business world, you get the people who are really interested in, um, you know, in beverage, but then you also have people who are interested in marketing. And so we had those two different verticals as well. um, So there's lots of different facets to the brand that press allows you to tell um, in a really natural way. And um, honestly, also the more relationships you have with anyone um is is really 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 good for the brand at the very early stage so getting out there and talking to a lot of really interesting journalists really interesting people was fantastic for us um almost like i hate the word networking but um there's that that baked into the process
0: definitely and how early on in the process did you start building those relationships and i assume it was just you or and your co-founder both building relationships simultaneously? Or did one of you kind of handle that over the other? So my co-founders
1: are, um, they're not involved in the day-to-day. I'm, I'm kind of the face of the brand. So it was just me building these relationships. And of course we had um, our press agency, JBC, working with us and they're phenomenal. Um, and so between you know, our strategy and my conversations, with the journalists and sending them product. And, you know, sometimes it was multiple conversations um, and uh, sometimes I hand-delivered product. So it's just that personal touch, I think, that really lends to the authentic storytelling. And the more people that you seed the idea with at an early stage, I think the better, because it kind of percolates in their minds and they can tell a better story we were about three months out when we started to see some things. And then it gets like increasingly more intense as you get to the launch date or, you know, the date that you, that you're planning on,
0: uh, press, right. pressing. <laughs> and obviously the branding and design of your product is awesome. Um, can you talk about how that happened? Did you do it yourself or did you outsource it or how'd you yeah, guys? So Alex, who
1: was involved in the development of the brand, um, he's, a he's phenomenal phenomenal designer and we had been working together for a while so we were already in a really good groove of knowing how each other worked he's an amazing creative partner couldn't ask for a better creative partner so we worked on this together and we kind of um I'm a big believer in developing a brand strategy at the same time as looking at the visuals so even when it's super young, your brand strategy and your ideas to say to a designer, hey, when I say to you like, uh, you know, um, uh, developing a brand that's all about variety and uh, the unity that is inherent in variety, right? Like, what does, that, what does that look like to you? And they can sketch some things out and then you look at it and then it, something occurs to you. Like, oh, that's very interesting. We could We could develop variety through color. Color is gonna be signature to us. Okay. And so then you like each of these things build on top of each other. Um, and we did it very much hand in hand um, for several rounds and he's uh, an amazing designer period. So that's why everything looks so great because <laughs> him and his studio still handle it and really created the foundation a, a brand system, not just packaging design, but an entire brand system for us.
0: That's amazing. And so what were some of those early metrics? Obviously the impressions from press were like a big signal that, Hey, maybe we have something here, but was there anything else in the early days that was like, this is, this is really exciting. This is happening. This is going somewhere. There's no turning back now.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. A few things. So, um, we ended up selling out Uh, We ended up like basically exceeding expectations five times over in like the first three months, which was such an interesting problem to have because the logistics of packing out product, mailing product, warehousing product, making product, finding line time, order, your whole supply chain is based on projections that you have. I mean, you have no control over them when you're first launching. You have no idea best case scenario is you everything best case, worst case, I guess it could say of the worst case scenarios. The best of those is that, um, you sell out so fast that you need to essentially rethink completely how you're staffing and how you're resourcing against all of that, which is what happened to us. So we initially had, you know, just, we didn't dedicate We didn't dedicate too much overhead to it. Um, We just wanted to see where it went. And eventually we ended up having to start our own warehouse um, and hire our own staff and manage all of our own product because we were moving so fast that we couldn't onboard a warehousing partner fast enough. So that was our stopgap
0: was doing it all of stuff That's funny. You're like, not because it was cheaper, but just because we didn't have the time. (laughs) A hundred percent. I mean, if I, if I could have onboarded, you know, a 3PL
1: in two weeks, I would have been like, yeah, you guys do it. You're the professionals. You know what's going on, but that wasn't the case. We had to do it in like five days or we would have had to be down for like a month. Um, so that was a very interesting time that we went through. Uh, are and you guys still doing that now? No, gosh, no. I, sometimes I miss those days because the, <laughs> the like, um, hands on, the, there is nothing. This is something that I talk about a lot and a big lesson that I learned. This is, the longer you can stay close to your product and your product getting out the door, the better. So if I could have maintained the warehouse you couldn't do it in new york city for very much longer because the the real estate here is even in pandemic times extremely extremely expensive it just doesn't make any sense for us to be like expanding warehouses every you know three months or whatever um and managing our own stuff right now at the time. Um, But uh, it really does teach you so, 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 so much about your own business and about your own product and handling it every day and being able to literally walk down the street and walk into your warehouse and see your inventory and um, print your labels and talk to the customers and all of that is, and and know your FedEx people. It's so, 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 so critical. Um, And I'm really, really, really grateful that we had that experience. Um, and I miss it. but our three PL partner is phenomenal. so yeah, <laughs> so but it is part.
0: pretty cool to see that. I um interviewed the founder um CEO of um, co-founder and CEO mm-hmm. of um, Health Aid kombucha, and they had yeah, yeah, the yeah house. and it was insane to see. It's just like insane that you know, just walk downstairs, boom, there it all is. It's all happening, yeah. bottling everything. It's um really cool that it's all in one under one roof, but um hundred
1: percent. I mean, eventually uh, when we, I always keep thinking that there's a time in the future when we'll have time, you know what I mean? I'm like, Oh, when we get to that mystical place in the future, when we have this great runway of time, right. to do all this stuff, yeah. maybe it'll happen. But I, you know, future state ideal is that we do have um, more of an into vertically integrated um, system because I just think there's something about building a culture in a v- vertically integrated way that um, aside from building a product and building culture too, that's very attractive to me.
0: And number-wise, um, does it make a lot more sense? Number-wise? Like, like margin-wise? Financially? Yeah, financially. financially. Yeah, yeah. Oh, certainly. Is it a huge I deal?
1: Absolutely. You know, it's, it's all about um, getting to the... There, there are levels, right? There are like plateaus where that makes sense. And so you need to get to the place where, you know, having your own facility... Um, and you need the volumes to support it, basically, is what I'm saying. Uh, and then it, it it starts to really, really ramp up um, the uh, efficiencies and the benefits that you get from from being vertically integrated. But it certainly, is extremely big lift in the beginning, um, which is why um, we just took the approach that we wanted to get to market and have proof of concept first. Uh, and that seems to be working really well. So now it's looking into the future, three five years um, to get there.
0: Now, you haven't taken any money so far. Do you think you're going to try to fundraise to scale? I mean, never say never. Uh,
1: <laughs> I, think, I think we're in a place where we certainly have the momentum and um, around the brand to be able to explore those opportunities. But I think we just really have to know not all money is the same. Right. So exactly what you're going to spend the money on and how that fits with the money that you have and who it comes from and all of that, I think, is really, really critical. So wading into those waters with great care uh, is something that that we will have to do, I'm sure, eventually. But right now we're blissfully (laughs) self-funded.
0: Yeah. Enjoy it while you can. (laughs) We are. I feel very lucky. (laughs) Um, So tell us about one of your most challenging moments and how did you overcome it throughout this, you know, period of building this business? What's been the most challenging thing? Oh, um, I think
1: for me, one of the most challenging things has been and based on this conversation, this probably won't surprise you. Um, making sure that the growth of the brand and the demands on a startup in a pandemic, um, especially during a time where not only was it comp- it's comp- like logistically complicated to run a soda company during this time and to make product during this time, but just from a day-to-day perspective, everyone's had to relearn how to work how to balance life and work, how to travel, how to manage your own stress, how to deal with your family, like all of these things, we're relearning how to do life at the same time that we are building a company. And, um, you know, managing that for my own personal self, whatever, being sensitive to the employees that I have, and making sure that the excitement and the momentum of the brand isn't crushing their spirits and is rather raising their spirits is is really, really a fine balance because you have to get things done. We're a very, very small team. We um, have a certain standard for doing things as well. Uh, And so there is pressure, Um, but we're all human and the company ultimately has to be a positive force in people's lives during this time. Um, And so that was extremely, extremely challenging from a leadership standpoint making sure that, um, we were able to keep, keep things happy, keep things positive, keep things exciting and motivating and not kind of like crushing, um, in this really complicated time. Um, and that's really the thing that like kept me up at night mostly, which was like, (laughs) is everyone doing okay? Um and what can I do to make things to keep the business healthy and keep the people healthy. I mean, literally right. healthy, literally healthy. Because right. we're managing our own warehouse too. And you know, that stuff is serious. You got a mask, you gotta clean, you do all that stuff. So that's really been the biggest challenges for me. Um And everyone's been amazing. And it's just really about communication over communication at all times, even on zoom, um, or any platform that anyone feels comfortable communicating on and being okay with sharing what's going on in your life. And, uh, and that can be really, really tricky, really, 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 really tricky. So, so far so good. Um, but it did not come without, without, you know, some, some stress. In that yeah. Area.
0: Sounds like, you know, yeah, you're dealing with launching a company and the challenges of that on top of the world in a global pandemic. So there's a lot of shifts and changes happening. Yeah. Um, yeah I mean,
1: being a CEO of a company is new to me and being yeah. the CEO of a company who has to worry about everything that you have to worry about anyway, yeah, and then also <laughs> worry about making sure that your employees don't get sick on the job. And like, mm-hmm. that is, I mean, whew, that was... Yeah. a lot of
0: emotional adjustment <laughs> right absolutely for everyone for everyone yes yeah so what about retail strategy are you guys currently in any retailers and do you plan to be mm. yeah so actually we launched our retail we've
1: been we've been very 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 strategic about retail because it can be both a blessing and a curse when it comes to cpg uh it can get very if it goes too fast it can actually crush your business um and if it goes too slow then the opportunity boat leaves without you um and so for us it's really about being in the right stores at the right time and we launched our retail our foray into retail with Airwan in LA which um was somewhat of a uh, you know they they came to us and we obviously you know, responded very positively, but it had to be the right time for us. We launched on July 4th, which was absolutely the right time for us in Air One. And the reason why that placement was really important for us is because it was a brand placement as much as it was sort of a statement that we are, you know, not just D2C, but also a shelf brand. And um, from there, similarly, we want to be expanding into markets and in other regions that have that double that double, uh, usefulness for us, the double strategy, which is velocity on shelf, um, and, uh, and cultural and brand significance. Um, so, so that that's when really you our say, plan for this phase.
0: Yeah. When you say velocity on shelf, how are you able to, what do you do to kind of find out that information? Is that just kind of in a conversation when you're talking to a retailer or, you know, it depends on, it depends on what distributor you use. Uh- <laughs> um uh that's that's like the funny that's like
1: the the jokey industry answer but um you'll know like it's kind of common knowledge once you talk to enough people what stores are high velocity versus not and like an air one is a high velocity store there was like recently an article that came out uh, in the new york times about how air like how air one is building brands and creating fans or something like that around products and people who go to that store are going there to buy tons of really cool stuff. That's what they want to do. And they do that. Right. So, um, that's why you get those velocities. There are other stores who drive velocities in other fashion, right? So like Costco, obviously is a totally different type of situation. Um, but, uh, but we needed the velocity and the, um, and that sort of cultural cachet or relevance in the market, um, and, uh, Erwan is a perfect fit because they have that in their market in the LA area in Southern California, but they also are nationally renowned. So it means something to the industry. It means something to buyers to know that that's where we are. And so we need to replicate that, uh, as well as then scale volume. Uh, and so we're in that phase where we're balancing those two things and doing that very deliberately.
0: So it sounds like there's a lot of strategy behind, you know, this being in retail stores and Mm -hmm. you're starting with kind of this dual thing of, does it align with the brand Mm -hmm. and is there a good velocity there? And then you're going to kind of what, kind of, I guess, start building the brand from there and then see how retailers respond as you scale.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think about it as sort of like rungs on a tree. So the core, like in, in each region that we would be in the core of that trunk, if you will, has to be a really, really solid presence, almost like a flagship. And then as you get out, you know, you need kind of need to expand out from there. So much of retail strategy is regionally based. And so each region sort of needs to be cared for in its own, in its own way.
0: (laughs) So you're saying like in LA or, you know, this Southern California area, one is the tastemaker. Let's get yeah, first exactly. Whereas in New York or any other region. It's going to be a different something else. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yep. And then the regions
1: that we pick are also important. So we're focusing on, I mean, shouldn't be surprising, but the LA's New York's Chicago's Texas, those are and we know that this also this idea also works for us because we have this D2C sales to show that those markets are sparking for us so Um, We know that the consumers there are interested. We know that the buyers there are interested. And we know we have sort of a model that we're replicating, um, you know, that we're experimenting with in SoCal in the rest of these regions. It's, um, But it's there's so much that is out of our control because there are so many people involved. Um, Distributors, so many layers. D2C has much less layers. You have more control. It's a totally different game. So essentially we run two businesses um, in the one business because they're completely different PL's and everything
0: I mean in theory <laughs> right right yeah. they're very different yeah very interesting um, so what's something you wish you would have known before you started your business
1: um, how complicated uh, how complicated distribution your relationship with your distributors and your retailers are Um. I find it to be very interesting. I like to do hard things and I like to solve hard problems, but that's a really, that's a big one from like a technical standpoint, from a like personal standpoint, um,
0: man. Well, what do you mean by technical standpoint? Like, what did you, what were your expectations going in working with distributors? And then like, what kind of, did you realize, I don't really think I had expectations.
1: I kind of knew that there was a lot of complex stuff happening in the business I was about to enter into that if I knew what it was, I wouldn't have done what I'm doing. Like you you have to you have to have a kind of like willing naivete I think to be an entrepreneur. If you know too much about the industry that you're about to disrupt, you won't disrupt it and you won't want you won't, you know, it's just you sort of see, you see the box too clearly and it's hard to not see the box basically. Like so,
0: what, I'm confused. Cause I think a lot of people out there are like, but you have such a cool looking brand, you know, it looks like it's the reason be- why our brand
1: is cool looking is because we did nothing that beverage experts tell you to do. Like our packaging right. has no information on it. They would say it has no information on it. Our packaging has all like the theory around the packaging, which is actually kind of a metaphor for the whole brand itself, is that we wanted to keep it as minimal as possible and to respect the intelligence of the customer as much as possible. So traditional beverage packaging rules would be like, no one is going to pick up the can and turn it over and read what's on the back of the can. You need to put everything that they need to know on the front of the can because marketing or purchasing decisions are made in 2.2 seconds, whatever it is. Right. Right. And, uh, And so that's why you have like, I mean, I've been in these reviews my whole career. Like, brand name really big on the front of the can followed by a refreshment cue which is usually some sort of like flavor cue which is like a fruit looking thing with like a spritz on it and you like overanalyze all the spritz and then you have like a like a reasons to believe. So you have like all of your information that's on the back panel, but you like put it in fun font on the front and you're like only 30 calories and six grams of sugar put it on the front. And then maybe you put a sticker on top of it that says like new. And then you have like a little tagline that's like only the best variety in America or whatever the heck the tagline is going to be. And it's all shoved on the front of the can. And then maybe the side panel has like a founder story that is like a hundred words long. And then you've got like, (laughs) and and so all the cans are starting to look like this on shelf. And it's like, we said, okay, no, 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 no. People are just looking for something that tastes really good. that's in a flavor that they want that has the right nutritional information. And I'm pretty sure that people know how to read a nutrition panel. So we stripped it all back. We said, we're going to put the flavor name. We're going to tell them that it's soda. We're going to have the brand on the back of the can and, uh, which is insane, but there it is. And we're going to have a nutritional panel. And if they want to know the nutritionals, they can pick up the can and they can turn it around. And I think they're going to do that. And it's actually working extraordinarily well. And we have no problem selling on shelf like zero. So I, I mean,
0: I mean, but you're saying you're saying before though, I guess that you were getting a lot of pushback maybe from Mm -hmm. distributors and all these other people that have been in this industry for a long time.
1: Like if we Hmm. were to ask, if we were to ask people permission to care about our brand, which is what you have to do to launch at retail, if you're launching a product in retail, you have to ask brokers, you have to ask buyers, you have to ask distributors and whatever, and they have to believe in you before consumers believe in you. But that doesn't make any sense. Consumers always call the shots. So if you, you launch DSC and consumers and press and celebrities and whoever else is buying your brand talks about it and says, this is what we want. This is what we love distributors will get it and so will retailers and so will their buyers um but you you know that was just our market our way to market mainly because I felt it was more a process that felt more intuitive to me there are other brands that are wildly successful that go to a market in a totally different way but that's because their founders are more intuitive in a different way and that's totally fine but that
0: was just our path Got it. That's super interesting. Um, and I think starting DTC these days obviously is like the only way to go. It feels like because you're able <laughs> to like <laughs> prove it all out um, and yeah. get to call the shots a little bit better. Like you just said. Yeah. What's the biggest yeah. thing you've learned about becoming a leader and a founder or CEO? um, <clears throat> I think it's really
1: important to, um, hire people who know how to do all the things that you don't know how to do. And you have to be really honest with yourself as to what it is you are actually going to dedicate to learn in detail. You you always have to learn, which is really important, but I'm never going to be the, um, and, you know, the accountant ops person that I, I hope that maybe I could be, right? I, so I have to hire someone to do that. And I have to be really, really confident in their ability to do it. And then I have to be okay with not knowing how to do everything that they do. I have to learn as much as I can to be a good partner to them, definitely. Um, but I really have to be okay with relying on their expertise, because at a certain point, you just you're, you can't be in every meeting. Yep. Can't make every decision can't do it all. And you're, and you know, my decision-making process when it comes to things might not be right, um, mm-hmm. in that certain field. So I need someone to really not only be an executor, but an advisor.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So before we wrap up just two more questions, um, you know, you've already shared some great advice. What else, what are there kind of final words of insight or wisdom do you have to share for aspiring entrepreneurs or others tuning in today? Um, I would say that maybe I'll
1: reiterate something that I said before, which is always, always, especially at an early stage, involve people that you trust and care about. It is not worth involving people that you do not trust or who you do not think care about you in the early stage. Uh, It is like a hundred percent the key to creating the right path for the brand. Um, both from a financial, you know, cleanliness standpoint, but also from a, like, sort of like a mojo standpoint. You just need to have the right vibes around in the team that is creating something. It doesn't have anything else but vibes in the beginning. So you have to have that, you know, maintained from the very beginning um, because it's always going to get crazy if success comes so it has to be solid has to be trust you know built on trust and if that means having patience to find the right partners or the right investors it's 100 billion percent worth it so be patient if you have a weird gut feeling about people or something don't move forward with it um you have to protect your idea um, and and you have to make sure that it has the right soil to grow in Um, so that I think is number one. And it's so hard, you know, when you want to make something happen really quickly, or you're so excited, it's so seductive to say like, Oh, this person, this person wants to join me. Usually if you have a really, really, really valuable idea, all sorts of people will come out of the woodwork. So choose wisely, um, in the beginning. And that I think will really, really pay off in the end, um, or on the journey or however you want to look at it. Uh, and, um, this is really cliche, but Good ideas often are seen as a little strange, and a lot of people are going to tell you it's not a good idea for a long time. And if you really, really, really truly believe in it, and if the people that you trust believe in it,
0: it's going to go someplace. It takes a, little, a minute, but um, it happens. That's good advice. And you say it's cliche, but I actually don't think anyone on the show has kind of said it that way. And that's a really, I think, interesting perspective that if it feels a little funny and weird, maybe it's because it's different and it, yeah. it, people are going to push back against it because it's new. And that's actually a good thing. Yeah. It is yeah. actually a great thing. If you get too
1: many people going, Oh yeah. Okay. That's okay. That's that's a good, I think that's a good idea. Then there's something wrong. Someone has to be like, no, that's that that could never happen the industry doesn't do that that no one has ever done that
0: that that kind of reaction can like, be why there. haven't someone i love the question i'm sure you get it a lot why hasn't coca-cola or pepsi done this right or like why haven't why hasn't this happened yet like why hasn't this been created yeah. already uh-huh yeah what's your response when they say that
1: um my response is coca-cola and nestle are not um there's a reason why they have to hire companies like the company I was a part of before to come up with ideas new ideas they are finely oiled machines that are designed to do the same thing over and over and over again that's how they work that's how they make money and they're very very good at it they hire the types of people that are very very good at doing the same thing every day really well no matter what it is but they do the same thing every day and they keep things on the rails um people like me and people who like to break things we don't like to do the same thing every day. We like to make shit up. We like to break things. And um, it's just a totally different type of working environment. Um, So I think that's, you know, they they don't hire the people that do that. They don't hire the people that naturally comes natural to. So I I really admire those companies, by the way. Um, I think that they're, you know, phenomenal in so many ways. I worked with them for many years and I learned so much. But I think just usually ideas that, breakthrough that are different and for lack of a better term disruptive um usually come from the outside and they don't come from the inside Mm -hmm.
0: yeah and what's your grand vision for the future what can we expect what's next for united sodas of america uh i would say um don't
1: be surprised if we launch some things that um provoke new questions about what a beverage should be or could be um and what a soda brand should look like or where where it should show up uh that's really where we're going to continue to um grow as a brand so you know we launched with the idea of how we could um you know make soda something more modern, um, to reimagine what soda can be. And, uh, there's other categories within that, that, um, we're, we're working on.
0: Cool. Well, I can't wait to, um, hear what those are. Thanks so much for being on the show today. It was so fun having you and thanks for sharing your story. Thanks so much. It was such a pleasure. I really appreciate you taking the time.